Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. We're back in Hebrews today, and I'm excited to be in this letter because it's an amazing letter. Last Sunday, we began this journey, a journey that speaks of the glory, authority, and supremacy of Christ. In fact, you could argue that's the theme of this letter, couldn't you? That it is about the glory and supremacy of Christ. Christ is greater than all the Old Testament pictures and shadows that came before. In fact, they are pictures and shadows precisely because they are fulfilled in Him. He is the fulfillment, the reality of all those things. It doesn't mean that they're not important. It just means they're not more important than He is. They find their meaning ultimately in Him. He is greater than they are. He is the fullness of all those things foreshadowed through time past. He is the purpose of all those things. He, meaning Christ, is the point, the talos or aim of all those things. The Scriptures, the eternal plan of God, all the promises of God find their amen in whom? In Him, in Christ, in His person, and in His work. Simply put, this letter testifies that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now this letter, the letter to the Hebrews, is not a self-help book. It's much like the song that we just heard, filled with wonderful theology. The point of this letter is to point you to Jesus, that you might see who He is, understand Him, that you might turn to Him and cling to Him. That doesn't mean that you won't find great help in this letter, but it's not written to offer you a ten-point plan to further your career. Neither will it offer you uh, three steps to improve your marriage. This is a letter that's aim is to tell you about Christ. If you understand who He is and what He accomplished, those other points will fall into their proper place. Now that realization brings us to the question that is central to this letter. If, as Paul elsewhere says, all God's promises find their amen in Him, then without Christ we are left with nothing. Now, that is the point of this glorious letter. It's background. We spoke last Sunday about many of the introductory matters of this letter, much of them mysterious. We aren't clear about who wrote it or who received it or what city they lived in. All those things are a mystery, and they were from the earliest days of the church. We spoke about Irenaeus saying that only God knows who wrote this letter. There is, however, one detail we can be sure about. This is a group of people who have proclaimed themselves to be believers. Jews who have proclaimed themselves to be believers in Christ. They have claimed to be Christians, yet as persecution arrives, they sought a safe harbor somewhere else. They seem to be fleeing back to their roots in Judaism. They are openly embracing the law while rejecting Christ. The point of this letter is that there is no safe harbor outside of Christ. It is in Christ and in Christ alone that we can have salvation. There is no way to hold on to a lesser revelation and show glory to God. This is because if you deny Christ, you dishonor God. It is only through Christ that we can be reconciled to God. That is the testimony of the Holy Scriptures. There is no plan B. We are saved by grace alone in Christ alone, by faith alone, to the glory of God alone. There is no other plan, nor was there ever any other plan. That is Paul's argument in his letter to the Romans. 
from the earliest days, it says that Abraham believed God and based on his faith, through God's grace, it was accounted unto him for righteousness. That's the message of Romans. And again, now in Hebrews, it is the message of the entirety of Scripture, grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone, is alone the way to salvation. There is no other way. Christ, the glorious King of kings, consubstantial, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and Spirit, has taken on a human nature, taken on flesh, and has come on this mission of salvation. If you deny Him, where else can you turn? There is hope to be found in no other person and in no other place. This point is of great importance to our overall exposition of this letter because we are going to have to speak about the ones to whom this letter is addressed. To a group of believers per se, of course, we have to be careful in calling the recipient's believer because a part of this letter is written as a warning to those who would turn away from Christ. Obviously, turning away from Christ would instruct us that the person was never truly a born-again believer. In the same way, those who listen to the warning and persevere in their faith would be properly addressed as believers. So, we must be cautious as we walk through this letter that we remember that the author is recognizing that some of both groups may be among the recipients of the letter that God is inspiring him to write. Again, the author is aware that the recipients have made a profession of faith. He is concerned whether they actually have a possession of faith. So it's to such professors that a warning is given. Think about what it would mean to say that you have no part or lot with Christ. So this letter is all about the impeccable glory of of this glorious Christ. And we will see that it is particularly declared in these first four sweeping verses which open this majestic letter. Let's read them together. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, I don't know what else to say. There is a lot in those four verses, literally. If you wanted to go through the biblical theology of the points made only in these four verses, you could spend an enormous amount of time. We're going to try to devote a good amount of time, but certainly there is much more that could be said. So as we draw our attention to the second verse of Hebrews 1, I want you to consider the following points. First of all, the glorious Christ. Now we just sang a song about hailing the glorious Christ. Now we want to talk about the glorious Christ. Second of all, the unquestionable heir. Christ is the heir. Not just the heir, the unquestionable heir. The heir of all things, all things placed under His feet. He is the heir. He rules and He reigns. Then as we close, our third point, the encouraging truth. We want to emphasize a word of encouragement. 
This letter should encourage us. Not only are there warnings in this text, but there are glories in this text that should encourage the people of God that they might persevere in their faith. Let's get right to it this morning. Starting first with this idea of the all-glorious Christ, I want to say this. Last Sunday we began with an introduction to the letter, and we covered some of the things that we've already been even discussing this morning. Now there's so much that we don't know about this letter. We already said that. One of the examples that we spoke about last Sunday was regarding authorship. We don't know for certain who wrote this letter. Of course, uh, I've been continuing to think about this this past week and to read about it, uh, reading more of the great minds in Christian history. John Owen argues that it must be Paul, even if it doesn't sound like his other writings. Pink agrees with that assessment, but he bases it on uh, the first epistle of Peter. We spoke last Sunday how many people in the early church had different candidates and that in the Reformation, Martin Luther said it must be Apollos. And so there's been different people offered. Now, this past week I was editing a sermon from the end of Second Thessalonians, the series we just concluded. And in that sermon, we looked at Paul's closing statement to the believers at Thessalonica, where Paul wrote with his own hands, saying, This is a sign of all the epistles I write. Now that word in Greek, if you remember from that sermon, is simeon, a significant Greek word. It seems like Paul is clearly stating that if he writes a letter, he always signifies it with his own hand. Now that is something the author of Hebrews does not seem to do. Now we might note that 2 Thessalonians was written well before Hebrews and that Paul could have changed his strategy or or couldn't foresee a future in which he would fail to do what he just said. But that statement is still found in the inspired Word of God. Now I understand that isn't a definitive argument for Paul not being the author, but I do think it adds a little more to the argument that the author is someone other than Paul, whether a Barnabas or an Apollos or someone else. The key point is that this letter is ultimately the inspired word of Almighty God. Now, another declaration that can be made based on this letter is that the letter clearly reveals that God has revealed much to man. This is what we looked at last Sunday. Our God is a God who speaks. Now, truly, we looked at this theme over the past two Sundays. Certainly last Sunday, but even the last two Sundays, two Sundays ago, two weeks ago, we looked at Paul's argument in Romans. That if God had not brought salvation to us, where could we have gone to get it? And that Paul was directly quoting Moses from the the Torah who was speaking of the revelation of God. Moses asked what height you could climb, what depth you could go down into, what sea you could cross to get revelation if God had not given it to us. You see, our God is a God who revealed Himself not only generally in nature, but also specially by His Word. He has done that by calling prophets. In many times and in many ways, this author tells us, and in fragments and in pieces, God spoke to our fathers by these very prophets. You see, there's a continuity in that, isn't there? A continuity in what God is doing. This same God who speaks to man is speaking once more, fully and finally in Christ Jesus. Not in sundry ways, but He has spoken in one final way, in the person of His own Son. You see, Christ is the glorious fulfillment and fullness of God's revelation to man. Now, there is great continuity there, but there's also contrast, isn't there? 
The same God who is speaking is speaking once more, but He's speaking in a way that is noticeably different. In times past, He was speaking. Now He speaks in these last days, eschatos, these final days. It's an eschatological message. God previously spoke in different ways and through different means, but now in one person. Previously, it was servant speaking. Now the one who speaks is God's own beloved Son. Having spoken about the Son, the author of Hebrews wants us to know something about the glory of that Son. The unique glory of the person of Christ. That is the first point we want to make today. This glorious Christ. Look at how the text describes this glorious Son. It says that He is in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Now we're going to be looking at these various descriptions in the weeks ahead, but they're very important. The author of Hebrews wants you to think about who Jesus is and what He came to do. He wants us to think about His person and His work. He desires that we would know Christ better. That is the point of this letter. Know Christ, the Son of God. While the Old Testament pointed directly to Him, you need to understand who He is the one whom all of it pointed to. If you recognize this, then you will know you cannot turn away from Him, not back to what you once had. There is nothing to turn back to. It is all culminated, fulfilled in Christ. You know, I recently heard John MacArthur say that the reason they're so often found in the Gospels at uh, Grace Community Church is the centrality of Christ in the message. And MacArthur said, you know, if, I want, if, if people are going to walk away from the gospel, I want them to know who they walk away from. They understand they're walking away from Jesus, from the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you're going to turn and walk away, know who you're walking away from. Now, it seems to me that's just the sort of thinking that we find in the letter to the Hebrews. Here the author returns over and again to Christ. If you're going to walk away, you will not claim that you never heard about Him as the unique God-man, the Son of God, truly God and truly man, the Savior, the perfect Lamb of God, the one who fulfills the mediatory roles foreshadowed in the Old Testament, this Christ who is the perfect priest, the perfect prophet, the perfect King. Isn't that a large part of what this letter is already telling us? Haven't we already seen that in this Exact revelation, what is, after all, a prophet? Is it not one who speaks on behalf of God to man? And if so, what would qualify you to be the greatest prophet? Would it not be one who perfectly can mediate between God and man? Well, who can more perfectly fulfill that role than one who is fully and truly God and fully and truly man? Now, we live in, we live in an age that argues for a lessening emphasis on this doctrine of the Incarnation. But the church cannot go along with such false thinking. Hebrews argues that everything hinges on this very truth. The gospel is not aided by the incarnation. The gospel is only possible because of the incarnation. 
It is not the height of cleverness to cast off these historic doctrines. It's the very height of folly. You cannot seek to grow the true church by demolishing its doctrinal foundation. Let me be very clear here. I am not speaking of those who outright reject the Incarnation, but of those who compromise its historic importance. When Andy Stanley argues that it's a non-essential doctrine in light of Christ's glorious resurrection, he is not only missing the boat, but placing his hearers in very serious jeopardy. It's only because of the hypostatic union that Christ could perform His perfect atoning work. It's the very basis on which this author will assert that Christ's priestly, perfect priestly work could be accomplished. If Christ was not fully God and fully man, then there is no resurrection worth celebrating. Why? Because this other Jesus being described would be no Jesus at all. He could not be the perfect Lamb of God. Thus, He could not offer a perfect atonement. Sure, He could have still died, but He could not save by that death any more than the death of Lazarus could atone for sin or my own death could atone for sin. No, it's because of who Christ is that His death could accomplish so great a salvation. This other Jesus could not enter the Holy of Holies, could not sit at the right hand of the Majesty on high, and He could not intercede perfectly on behalf of His people. Now this letter is going to have much to say about the greatness of Christ's priesthood. Christ has a priesthood that is not like that of the Old Testament. He has a priesthood unlike that of Levi in the Old Testament. In fact, His priesthood is from a completely different order than Levi. Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. A mysterious order barely mentioned in Genesis, barely mentioned in Psalm 110, yet expounded here. It is a greater priesthood because Levi, while in the loins of Abraham, offered a tithe to Melchizedek. So this priesthood argument is very important. Today the mediatory office of king will also be mentioned. Christ is the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king precisely because of this doctrine of the Incarnation. Please hear me this morning. If this other false Jesus were real, you would still be in your sins and without hope. But praise God that it can be said of our Christ, for in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Because He is the incarnate Word. He is glorious beyond all comprehension. He is our gloriously perfect prophet, our glorious and perfect high priest, our glorious King, our glorious Savior. To put it as simply as I can, He is our all-glorious Christ. And He is worthy of eternal reverence and worship. All hail our glorious Christ. And that brings us to our second point this morning as we come to look at the one of whom these descriptions are given by the author of this letter, that Christ is the heir of all things. Can we pause for just a second and marvel as we go to this second point? The second point, the unquestionable heir. What a glorious description we read. Christ Jesus is the heir of all things. Now this is terminology that we understand. Even natural men can understand the greatness of being called an heir. Being an heir to a great fortune is something coveted by all men. Yet the statement is astounding because it states that Christ is the heir of all things. 
Now let's tap the brakes once more. When we use a term like air in reference to Jesus, we need to be both careful and thoughtful of what the Word of God is instructing us to understand. Jesus, as the second person of Trinity, He is the owner of all things as God. It was created, uh, all things were created through Him. He already possesses all things. He is very God, a very God. In fact, the very next phrase of this letter describes Christ as the one through whom the worlds were made. Isn't that also what John says as he opens his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. All things were made through Christ. Of course, that text explains how all things were made, but it may not tell us that all things belong to Him. Of course, I think we could argue that's a logical inference. If He made all things, it seems entirely logical that all things are already His. But do the Scriptures actually say it? Yes. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him. We've already heard that, but now listen to this. And for Him. That certainly seems to include all things. Everything. So again, we can say that in His divine nature, as God, Christ was already the owner and possessor of all things. So this text must be speaking of something else, something related to His incarnational work, His mediatorial work. In other words, this being appointed heir is speaking of something related to His human nature taken on in the incarnation. Let's turn back, if you will, to Psalm 2. If you've got your Bibles there, turn to Psalm 2. Now this is one of ten royal or coronation psalms of the Psalter. And these are about the king under God. And the church has long noted the connection between Hebrews 1-2 and the second psalm. So I'd like to read the text of the psalm and see why that is. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure. Yet I have set my King on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. Amen. Now, a couple of quick notes as we're walking through that text. You'll notice a couple of things of great importance. That it, 
This text tells us, first of all, that all who trust in the Lord shall be blessed, shall not be put to shame. But there is a stern word of war. Try that again. There is a stern word of warning for all those who are set against this same son and king. Notice uh, the nations are raging and the people are plotting and the kings of the earth set themselves against and the rulers take counsel together. And what is God's reaction? He laughs at them. He laughs at them because he has set his king on his holy hill of Zion. Now, my friends, this is an authoritative king. Christ has been given power. The rulers and judges of the earth are given a clear warning. Serve the Lord with fear. We live in an age that laughs at the idea of fearing the Lord, yet the Word of God tells us that there is no greater sign of foolishness than that. In fact, it's a sign of debased thinking. To look under the God who created everything that exists, recognizing His unrivaled power, and not to stand in reverence, awe, and fear is the very height of hubris in which man's rebellion exists. This text even says, Rejoice with trembling, for even our joy should be marked by holy reverence for our awesome God. History tells us by example that those who served in the courts of human kings served with great trembling. You know, one wrong step and it could spell doom for you. You could lose your head. Of course, the king of which we are speaking of is perfectly holy. Thus, we don't want to say this wrongly. But he is perfectly holy. And therefore, he is infinitely more worthy of admiration, love, respect, glory, and fear. Now, this psalm says that in the midst of all of this activity, the Father has already set His King on His holy mountain. Further, when He asks, the Father will give Him, the Son, the King, the nations as an inheritance, and the ends of the earth as a possession. Now, this psalm offers a wide view of the power of this Son. All nations under His power. All rulers kneel down before Him. He holds the rod of iron, signifying His power, this is the authoritative king and son. And as we return to Hebrews, we see the corresponding picture in today's text. It is this authoritative king and son who has been appointed heir of all things. Heir of all things. This theological thread of inheritance runs quite literally throughout all the scriptures. It carries with it many facets of theological importance, and we could park here and chase them for quite a while. You might remember that Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. Now, he's contrasting, of course, against the first man, Adam. Adam, the, the federal head in which we all stood as natural men, having descended from him. It was said of that first Adam that he was a son of God, having been created by God from the dust of the earth. To Adam, God gave dominion over the creatures. Adam administrating a level of authority which God had given unto him. Then Adam disobeyed God. And in the fall and corresponding curse, that dominion was marred. No longer does the earth produce freely for man. Yet the scriptures testify that the last Adam comes to undo what was done by the first Adam. Just as Adam brought disobedience and death, so the last Adam, Christ, brings reconciliation in life. You must stand in an Adam. 
You must stand in an atom. You stand either in the first atom or in Christ. That's the question that Paul comes to in Romans. In whom will you stand? In Adam and his rebellion or in Christ in his perfect obedience and righteousness? Do you stand in the one, trusting in your own human effort and works? Or do you stand in Christ by grace? For salvation is found only in Christ. It is found nowhere else. Christ is the one who is bringing restoration. We could turn to Romans 8 and see there that this truth applies even to the creation. The creation itself is yearning, craning its neck to see the day when all will be set right. This is another picture of what God in Christ is accomplishing. Another important picture that is related to this is found in Abram. God comes to Abram in Genesis 17 and gives him a new name, Abraham, which means father of nations. In this, Abraham is appointed the father of the nations and the father of a seed through whom all the nations shall be blessed. It is to this Abraham that a seed is given, which is to say a singular seed. That's what Paul says in Galatians, meaning Christ. How are all the nations blessed through this seed? The gospel is certainly an answer to that question. We can certainly see that as a great blessing as it goes out to the very ends of the earth, saving sinners from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Yet there is also a further blessing being described here, that Christ is to rule and reign, the rightful and glorious King over all the nations. They belong to Him. What is fully true now will be fully evident then. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Amazingly, it's more glorious even than that because this text says all things. It is not just the nations that's in view in Hebrews 1-2, but all things. That is also what the Colossians text says. All things are Christ. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. All things are Christ. You see, all things are placed under His feet. He is the rightful and glorious King who is the heir of all things. And by heir, we mean the Lord of all things. Now, we shouldn't press this picture of heirship too far. Christ isn't waiting for someone to die before He can receive the inheritance. That's not what's in view here. Think it more like the message of the prodigal's father when the prodigal's brother complains that the father is throwing a party for the now-returned son. The father says to him, all things that I have belong to you. You see, as heir, he is considered a joint owner in these things. In saying that, he is saying that his heirship signifies ownership and authority. Christ is the heir because what belongs to the father belongs to him. Because all things belong to God. Now there's a beautiful truth that's found in this text. In this mediatorial office of the perfect king, what Christ already had by divine right in his divinity, he has now been appointed in his humanity. He is the heir and rightful owner of all things. Now that's an encouraging truth. I said uh, that our third point this morning is a word of encouragement to the people of God. We're going to close with this word of encouragement. If you have a second... Turn over to Romans chapter 8. As you're turning there, I want to preface this by saying that 
There are warnings in Hebrews that are stern and serious. In fact, they're as stern and serious as any found in all the Scriptures. In fact, they're so stern that some people have great difficulty in dealing with them because uh, they aren't sure what to make of them. We're going to come to those and we're going to be careful with them. But having stated that, this is also a book of great encouragement to a people who need encouragement. These same believers to whom warnings were given are also given great reminders of glorious things which are made available in Christ Jesus, glorious truths and glorious privileges. This is also what Paul was telling the church at Rome. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 8. I want to begin at verse 12. We'll read through verse 17. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Just walking through that text for a second, I want you to notice what gives us the right to be called sons of God. It's that we are led by the Spirit of God. In other words, we have the Spirit of God which is given to us at our justification, the Holy Spirit, is given to us, the love of God poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And notice again, it's by that right that we can, by the adoption that we have into God's family, that we can cry out, Abba, Father. Now, he says, if that's the case, then we are children. And if we are children, we are heirs. And hear what he says, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. The point that we want to look at here is that this offers a word of comfort and encouragement and even glory to believers. We are adopted into the family of God. When you become a Christian, you stand in Christ no longer in Adam. You have imputed your sin to Christ on the cross and have His righteousness imputed to you by grace through faith. There are wonderful truths that are yours. Not only are we at peace with God, but we become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We stand in Christ and He offers us what is His. And that is everything. This does not make us Lord. Christ alone is Lord, but we are declared to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. When you think about such glories, what the author of Hebrews and what Paul is telling the Romans here. You understand what Paul was telling the Corinthians when he said, all things are yours. Now this is not the prosperity gospel which dislocates the timing of the reception of this promise. God is not promising that you will receive all these things now. They already belong to Christ and in Christ they are already yours. But what is true now will be fully evident at the time of God's choosing. Until that day, you already have the most precious thing imaginable. And that is life in Christ because of union to Christ. The question all this leads directly to is this. How could you turn away from this? 
How could you turn away from such truths? How could you walk away from the one who is himself king, glorious king, glorious, holy, righteous, the one through whom you can be offered life, the one who is the fulfillment of all God's promises, all the shadows that you are talking about turning back to. He's the very Son of God, the heir of all things, the one through whom the worlds were also made. How can you turn from so glorious a king And to whom else could you turn? It is the very question that the Apostle Peter asked when he said, Where else, Lord, can we turn? Who else has the words of life? Now that's a good summary for this letter, isn't it? Where else can you turn? As the author of Hebrews is writing to a people who are thinking about turning away from Christ and finding safe harbor back in Judaism, the question is, where else can you turn? Who else has the words of life? The Word of God alone. The Word incarnate. There is no other. Where can you turn? My dear friends, there is Christ the King and there is no one else. How could you turn away from the King of glory? Yet this truth should do much more than simply keep you from leaving. It ought to drive you to worship. It should drive us to the realization of the perfect honor and glory of Christ. If we recognize that great truth, then whatever it might seem to cost us to follow Him is no sacrifice. You see, what we're receiving in Christ is far more precious than any trial or tribulation that we might endure for following Him. Therefore, we must stand fast and not lose heart. We must stand fast and not turn back. Jesus told a parable along these lines, didn't he, of it not being a sacrifice. He spoke of a treasure in a field that a man stumbled upon. Realizing the vast worth of the treasure, he sold all that he had to purchase that field. Now, how could that rightly be called a sacrifice? Can you even imagine imagine a man complaining about such an arrangement? Would you listen to it even for a second? Oh, I had to empty my bank account of $30,000 so I could receive this multi-million dollar treasure. My friends, you wouldn't want to hear it. You'd call it foolishness. Whatever it cost him, he received a bargain when you looked at what he got in return. In the same way what the author of Hebrews is telling these believers, and he's telling us as well, whatever hardship we might encounter for Christ's sake, it is nothing. It is nothing compared to what we've received in Christ Jesus by the grace of God. To that I'll only add, Amen.